Good evening. Biden bans oil imports from Russia. The GOP offers $14 billion in military aid to Ukraine. We look at the real causes of the war. And the mayor demands total control over city schools. As activists say, his gun plan is just more of the same, an attack on the poor for political points. With these and other stories, I'm Paul DiRienzo with the WBAI News for Tuesday, March 8th, 2022. President Joe Biden announced a ban on Russian oil and other energy imports on Tuesday in retaliation for the invasion of Ukraine, underscoring strong bipartisan support for a move that he acknowledged would drive up United States energy prices. Today, I'm announcing the United States is targeting the main artery of Russia's economy. We're banning all imports of Russian oil and gas and energy. That means Russian oil will no longer be acceptable at U.S. ports and the American people will deal another powerful blow to Putin's war machine. This is a move that has strong bipartisan support in the Congress and I believe in the country. Americans have rallied support, have rallied to support the Ukrainian people and made it clear we will not be part of subsidizing Putin's war. This made, we made this decision in close consultation with our allies and our partners around the world, particularly in Europe, because a united response to Putin's aggression has been my overriding focus to keep all NATO and all of the EU and our allies totally united. We're moving forward with this ban, understanding that many of our European allies and partners may not be in a position to join us. The United States produces far more oil domestically than all of European, all the European countries combined. In fact, we're a net exporter of energy. So we can take this step when others cannot. But we're working closely with Europe and our partners to develop a long-term strategy to reduce their dependence on Russian energy as well. Our teams are actively discussing how to make this happen. And today, we remain united. We remain united. And that was President Biden today. Oil prices jumped on the news with benchmark Brent crude orders from May climbing by 5.4% to $129.91 a barrel. That's among the highest prices in a decade. Biden said sanctions imposed by the United States and its allies had already caused the Russian economy to crater, saying the latest moves have been made in close consultation with allies and partners around the world. Although no European country has made the same move, Europe is much more dependent on Russian energy than the United States. The U.S. imported more than 20.4 million barrels of crude and refined products a month on average from Russia in 2021, about 8% of United States liquid fuel imports. That's according to the Energy Information Administration. Biden predicts prices would rise further as a result of what he called Putin's war, but pledged to do all he could to minimize the impact on the American people. Meanwhile, the effect is being felt in the United States, where the average price for a gallon of regular gas on Monday hit $4.17, an all-time high, breaking the previous record of $4.11 a gallon that had stood since July 2008. Prices were already elevated because of supply shortages before Russia invaded Ukraine two weeks ago, but prices have spiked as the oil industry has shunned Russian crude. And Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell, once nicknamed with the moniker Moscow Mitch for his support of former President Donald Trump during an impeachment fight that centered on Trump's alleged relationship with Russia and Ukraine, has come out swinging on behalf of Ukraine, promising billions, $14 billion in military aid, he says, over the objection of some Democrats. In order to get to $14 billion, we actually had to uh, prevent 
House Democrats from blocking loan guarantees to help Eastern uh, NATO allies uh, buy American aircraft with their own money, which shouldn't have been a problem. The House Democrats tried to cut the own uh, the administration's request for security assistance by $300 million. In other words, it's been like pulling teeth uh, to get out of House Democrats what the Ukrainians obviously need at this particular time. Um, and we've been slow, much too slow. But the package, I gather, will be coming over from the House attached to the Omni. I think it's an important step. It needs to be passed, and it needs to be passed quickly. And that was Mitch McConnell, Senator Mitch McConnell, earlier today. In related news, testifying before Congress, CIA Director William Burns says that Russian President Vladimir Putin's war planning in Ukraine was premised on a quick and decisive victory, which he says has not happened. Burns says the Russian leader has no endgame and is angry and frustrated over military casualties Russian forces have suffered in the face of Ukrainian resistance, adding he expects the Russian leader to double down on his military strategy in the coming weeks. I think Putin is determined to dominate and control Ukraine to shape its orientation. Um, you know, this is a matter of deep personal conviction for him. He's been stewing in a combustible combination of grievance and ambition for many years. Um, that personal conviction matters more than ever in the Russian system. He's created a system in which his own circle of advisors is narrower and narrower. COVID has made that even narrower. Um, and it's a system in which it's not proven career enhancing for people to question or challenge his judgment. So he's gone to war, I think, on the basis, Mr. Chairman, of a number of assumptions which led him to believe that he faced, that Russia faced, a favorable landscape for the use of force against Ukraine this winter. First, that Ukraine, in his view, was weak and easily intimidated. Second, that the Europeans, especially the French and Germans, were distracted by elections in France and a leadership succession in Germany and risk-averse. Third, he believed he had sanctions-proofed his economy. Um, in, in the sense of creating a large war chest of foreign currency reserves. And fourth, he was confident that he had modernized his military and they were capable of a quick, decisive victory at minimal cost. Um, he's been proven wrong on every count. Those assumptions have proven to be profoundly flawed over the last 12 days of conflict. President Zelensky, is, as you mentioned, Mr. Chairman, as the ranking member mentioned, um, has risen to the moment and demonstrated courageous and remarkable leadership, and Ukrainians have resisted fiercely. Um, second, um, the Europeans have demonstrated remarkable resolve, um, especially the Germans. Third, uh, the economic consequences of the sanctions which have been enacted so far have proven to be devastating for Russia, especially against the Russian Central Bank. Um, depriving Putin of the ability that he assumed he'd have to defend the ruble. And fourth, his own military's performance has been largely ineffective. Instead of seizing Kiev within the first two days of the campaign, which was what his plan was premised upon, after nearly two weeks, they still have not been able to fully encircle the city. And so, you know, Putin has, has commented privately and publicly over the years that he doesn't believe Ukraine's a real country. He's dead wrong about that. Real countries fight back. 
And that's what the Ukrainians have done quite heroically over the last 12 days. Um, as you said, Mr. Chairman, I think Putin is angry and frustrated right now. He's likely to double down and try to grind down the Ukrainian military with no regard for civilian casualties. But the challenge that he faces, and this is the biggest question that's hung over our analysis of his planning for months now, as the director, as Director Haynes said, is he has no sustainable political endgame in the face of what is going to continue to be fierce resistance from Ukrainians. So I think that's what his calculus um, has been, and I think that's the reality of what he faces today. In terms of casualties, I, I know uh, General Barry may want to comment on that, but there have been far in excess Russian military casualties killed and wounded, far in excess of what he anticipated. Because his military planning and assumptions was premised on a quick, decisive victory. Um, and uh, that has not proven to be the case. And uh, that's William Burns. He's the director of the Central Intelligence Agency. It's an about face for the CIA director. William Burns once warned NATO expansion into Ukraine was wrongheaded and could cause a war. Journalist and author Anatole Levin is senior research fellow on Russia and Europe at the Quincy Institute for Responsible Statecraft and author of Ukraine and Russia, Eternal Rivalry. He writes, if the Russians are ever to withdraw, a diplomatic agreement on the terms of withdrawal will be necessary, telling WBAI, if the Russians are to get out, a diplomatic agreement will require that the U.S. give up on these sanctions. We spoke earlier this afternoon. I was a journalist in Afghanistan um, with the Mujahideen in the 1980s. Um, I can't remember how much um, America poured into Afghanistan. I mean, the point is uh, that, um, y you know, the, the American goals there were pursued over the bodies of innumerable Afghans. Um, and the end result, of course, um, was disastrous for everybody. Uh, so um, I... Uh, strongly support economic sanctions against Russia. Um, but I feel that, I mean, all U.S. policy should also be uh, geared to uh, trying to bring about a, um, a, a peace agreement. Because the other thing is, um, look, uh, I mean, the, 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 obviously the, the Russian army has not um, done nearly as well uh, as the Russian government hoped. Um, and uh, the Ukrainians have put up a tremendous fight. But the fact remains that, uh, you know, Russia has seized a large areas of Ukrainian territory, including most of Ukraine's Black Sea coast, I mean, Ukraine's only coastline, um, and has linked up Crimea and um, Russia or the Donbass by land. Uh, now, um, it will be very difficult um, to get Russia out of there again, at least not um, without years and years of uh, bloodshed um, and destruction in Ukraine. Um, as for Crimea, it will basically, I think, be impossible ever to get Russia out of there. Um, so uh, why not seek, you know, uh, some form of compromise peace now uh, rather than later when um, tens or hundreds of thousands of people have died. And what about this idea that's coming out of Russia that Ukraine is a neo-Nazi country? No, no, I mean, that is an absolutely grotesque exaggeration. Um, and, uh, you, you know, the, um, the, the extreme rightist parties 
in electoral terms, have always been very weak. I mean, what they do have is street power um, and uh, disproportionate power within the armed forces. Uh, no, I mean, that, that, that is simply a lie on the part of the, the Kremlin. I mean, w what is true, um, and where Russia has, you know, a much better case, but where Russia does have a more reasonable case um, is that in recent years, Ukraine has introduced uh, a number of laws um, very heavily discriminating against the Russian language in Ukraine, really attempting to drive it out of public life. Uh, and uh, given that, you know, 20% of the Ukrainian population consider themselves to be ethnic Russians, and around a third speak Russian as their first language, um, well, you know, the, the, this law has actually been criticised by the, uh, the Council of Europe. Um, so there, Russia has a, a, a case, but I mean, this is uh, nowhere near, nowhere remotely near Nazism. In their descriptions to Americans and making this out to be a white hat, black hat, good guys versus bad guys. There are bad guys in the world today who are close allies of the United States. The problem about this kind of intense moralizing, as many great American critics, you know, Reinhold Niebuhr, Senator Fulbright pointed out, is that it tends to make any kind of reasonable compromise impossible and drives conflict in the world. Now, that said, I do think that Putin, however he may have started, has become a very bad ruler of Russia. I think that this war is, has been a, both a criminal and a disastrous move on his part. He is obviously doing terrible damage to Ukraine, but will also inevitably do terrible damage to Russia as well, and of course to international peace. Saying that Putin isn't Hitler doesn't mean saying that this is a good man or that his actions have been justified or that he should remain president of Russia. Anatole Levin, he is Senior Research Fellow on Russia and Europe at the Quincy Institute for Responsible Statecraft. He spoke with WBAI from London and Ukraine's government, and this is in more Ukraine-related news. And again, remember, it's the fog of war. We do our best to look at all the different sources out there and collect as much information, including talking to folks on the scene at times. Ukraine's government has said some civilians were evacuated from the city of Sumy after a local ceasefire was largely observed, but officials accused Russian forces of shelling a humanitarian corridor that Moscow had promised to open to let residents flee the besieged port of Mariupol. Moscow's forces have laid siege to several Ukrainian cities and cut off food, water, heat, and medicine amid growing fears of a humanitarian disaster. But for days, attempts to create corridors to safely evacuate civilians have stumbled amid continuing fighting and objections to the proposed routes. And McDonald's, the hamburger joint, on Tuesday became the latest on the growing list of U.S. multinational companies to suspend activities in Russia, joining Apple, Levi's, and others. But some have chosen to stay in country despite the risk to their reputation. Following last month's invasion of Ukraine, the pressures are mounting and calls for repercussions appeared on social media under hashtags calling on McDonald's to get out of the country. A French, meanwhile, in uh, more European news, uh, considering as we were speaking earlier to uh, Mr. Levin about the, uh, the, uh, whether or not um, the government of Ukraine is fascist or white supremacist, uh, 
You don't have to go too far to find that kind of thing. A French far-right presidential contender on the back foot over past support for Russian President Putin has said Ukrainians with family links to France should be given visas, unlike those fleeing conflicts in Muslim nations. Eric Zemmour warned on Tuesday that an emotional response to the war in Ukraine risked unleashing a flood of refugees across Europe after the European Union agreed to give Ukrainians who flee the Russian invasion the right to stay and work in the 27-nation bloc for up to three years. And you're listening to the news on WBAI New York. I'm Paul DiRienzo. In local news, Mayor Adams, Mayor Mayor Eric Adams uh, this morning was at uh, a high school in Queens. He was at Bayshore High School, pardon me, Bayside High School in Queens as part of District 19. And he was plugging mayoral accountability. That is Uh, giving the mayor power to decide what happens in the city schools. Uh, Some of us might remember going back in the, into the seventies and eighties that New York city was uh, schools were run by elected school boards, community organizations that were in charge of the schools that came after a long struggle of, for the parents to have a say in, in what their children are taught, something that's taken for granted in other parts of the country, but is pretty much hard to get at in New York. However, after decades of uh, school board rule, uh, there came to be a feeling in the government that uh, it wasn't an efficient enough way of running things and that uh, they wanted to have the mayor uh, be able to make uh, decisions on a dime about how to run the schools that wasn't appropriate when you had people arguing and debating and voting on things. It always is a messier system than one person telling you what to do. And of course, we know that uh, a testing-oriented approach, which is sort of like handed down to the schools, especially under Mayor Mike Bloomberg. And uh, although you would think that uh, since Mike Bloomberg, mayors have had that control that they wanted in the schools. In fact, it has to be uh, annually. It has to be renewed every year. And the mayor is, uh, in, together with the governor, Hochul, wants to uh, put a more permanent approach to what he calls mayoral accountability in the state budget that would eliminate the uh, annual uh, renewal that's required now. So at that high school in Queens, Bayside High School, where the mayor went to school, he said he was bused there one and a half hours every day, bused from his home to a school, a better school, he said, in Bayside, because the school he was uh, in his community uh, in South Jamaica, where he grew up, uh, didn't have the facilities that the schools had in Bayside. So um, he then talked about how uh, he wanted to give $1.6 million to Bayside High School, uh, and that he was able to do that because he had the power as the uh, what he called mayoral accountability to do that. He spoke today. If anyone should be in charge of our school system, it should be two school kids from the public school system. Uh, that's what this is about. Uh, David coming up through uh, the public school system, Eric Adams coming up through the public school system. Uh, those are the obvious. But then there are those things that are obvi- obvious, but we don't want to identify. Uh, we're two black men. And the overwhelming amount of the public schools students are black and brown students. And seeing us run this school, we're going to bring a commitment and dedication and understanding of what the denial of education has brought. And as the first 
uh, mayor of color to be in charge of mayoral accountability in our school system, it sends the right message uh, that we move this school system forward. We applaud Governor Hochul for sending a clear and loud message that we need to have uh, mayor accountability for four years and it should be included in the budget. We have mayoral accountability in the police department, in the Department of Finance, in the Department of Buildings, in the FDNY, in social services. Every agency in our city, the mayor is responsible. You want to point to your mayor. So if the mayor is responsible for every agency that handles adults' problems, why shouldn't the mayor be responsible for the agency that handles the problems of our children that actually feeds the crises that we are experiencing? This is just not dollars and cents. It's common sense. And I was mayor earlier, uh, earlier today. And uh, another issue that uh, the mayor has uh, been bringing to the fore is, of course, criminal justice and gun control. Uh, the mayor has uh, uh, been, as many New Yorkers, uh, just shocked and aghast at the uh, shootings that have gone on in uh, many communities of color, especially where uh, uh, folks have uh, been killed by uh, continuing uh, gunfire and, and uh, onslaught of gun uh, violence. Uh, but... Some folks are taking issue with the mayor's approach. Um, the, one of the groups is uh, is well known to WBAI listeners is the uh, uh, committee uh, coalition uh, committee United for Police Reform, and uh, they say that. Uh, the blueprint to end gun violence that the mayor has been touting and wants to bring to Washington, uh, Communities United for Police Reform, sorry, wants to make it clear that the uh, mayor is presenting this plan, his blueprint to end gun violence, without the support or buy-in of communities of color who will be targeted by what they call the abusive practices of the NYPD that are laid out in the mayor's uh, blueprint. The CPR Communities for United for Police Reform is submitting a sign-on letter that includes signatories from all five boroughs and a wide range of organizations specializing in community organizing, civil rights, youth development, and violence reduction, and representing Black, Latinx, and other New Yorkers of color. Uh, we spoke with the uh, with Leo Ferguson, and he's a member. He's director of strategic products projects for Jews for Social and Economic Justice, and a spokesperson for community uh, organizers, and he had this to say to WBAI earlier today about the mayor's plan. Communities across New York have been demanding a real investment, a real vision for public health uh, and safety that uh, reduces gun violence. We know that gun violence is a major problem. It's obviously become even more of a problem following the pandemic when so many communities were devastated and left uh, traumatized and uh, even more uh, economically vulnerable. We need jobs, affordable places to live. We need wraparound services for people with mental illness and substance use disorders. And we need high quality education for, for everyone. We need uh, you know access to high quality health care. I think that should be obvious following the pandemic. You know, we know you can just look around the city and see that the safest communities are the ones that have the most resources, not the ones that have the most police. And unfortunately, uh, Mayor Adams' plan has you know, is a step backwards. It's going back to the same failed playbook of centering criminalization and policing that we saw, you know, in the 90s that exploded the, uh, you know, the prison population, 
um, that we saw with stop and frisk, where you had you know racially discriminatory, racially discriminatory stops of uh, you know hundreds of thousands of New Yorkers. Um, these are the kinds of things that we have you know started to make some real headway and moving beyond, and this goes backwards. Explain to us how it goes backwards. Mayor Adams' blueprint goes backwards because um, even though it, while it you know it talks about public health, the only things that it really offers specific plans for involve policing and, and criminalization and putting more cops in the streets and putting more people in prison. How would it do that? The plan calls for restoring the, um, the anti-crime unit, also called uh, previously called the street crimes unit. This is the unit that gunned down on the Dudiello in a hail of bullets in 1999, the same unit that went on to kill C.H. Bessel and Kamani Gray and Eric Garner and Antonio Williams and too many more. Um, it's also... Uh, one of the units that was, uh, you know, considered to have done the most discriminatory um, stops and frisks. The plan calls for doing things like rolling back uh, bail reforms, which, um, you know, have not <laughs> been a driver. Uh, you know, data keeps showing that, that they have not been a driver of the uh, violence that we're seeing in the city now. But as, you know, is all too often the case with policing, these are sort of data-free conversations that are people do it based on emotion and not based on reality. Uh, it calls for uh, repealing the Raise the Age Bill, uh, this uh, landmark piece of legislation that was just passed that um, stopped the medieval practice of trying and jailing children as adults in New York State. Like None of these things are things that are going to make our community safer. Mm -hmm. Well, the mayor and the press uh, seem to beg to differ. This was a childish little, uh, a few uh, social Democrats got elected and now they got a, the adults are back in charge. Yeah, absolutely. Well, that perspective is, you know, is not actually what real New Yorkers want. We have lots of survey data, lots of the NYPD's own data that shows the, uh, the public uh, plurality of New Yorkers do not uh, trust the NYPD and really want more services. They want more social services. Um, you know, the kinds of talking points that, you know, right-wing police unions are making, that, that Donald Trump was making, you know, this is the kind of stuff that we're hearing, unfortunately, from, you know, too many uh, Democrats and, you know, people like the mayor who want to use this tough-on-crime rhetoric because it's a, it's a politically easy expedient. It sounds tough, it sounds uh, macho, but it doesn't actually reduce crime. And we have tons and tons of data to show that the things that actually reduce crime far more effectively than policing are investments in public health, investments in reducing poverty, investments in education. Policing does spend a lot of money to sort of decimate communities, right, to pull people out of their communities and not fix any of the problems that got people in trouble in the first place. Leo Ferguson is spokesperson for Communities for Police United for Police Reform. And today is this final story. And today is International Women's Day in New York City. Marked the day in grand fashion. 13 women joined the ranks of the FDNY this morning, bringing the total number of female firefighters to the highest number in the department's 157-year history. And that happened today on International Women's Day. The 13 newbies were acknowledged by Acting Fire Commissioner Laura Cavanaugh, the department's first female commissioner, who noted that they would become role models 
for all future generations. With the 13 new graduates, the FDNY's total number of female firefighters is brought to 134, accounting for a little more than 1% of the department's more than 10,000 firefighters. According to the FDNY, the first Pakistani woman to ever join the department, Aisha Lone, was also among Tuesday's graduating class. She told the department that she felt compelled to join at a career fair after learning that she would be paving a path for other Pakistani women.